Good day, good morning, good afternoon. It's John Summers, the motoring historian. I might need to change that intro. I'm starting to annoy even me, so maybe as the listener, it's annoying you more, but not tomorrow. What are you going to be instead? Hello, Mark. How are you? I'm going. To, I'm. I'm brilliant, mate. I'm intrigued now. What are you going to be instead of the well, motoring you know, historian? Before we came on the line here, literally, I was listening. To, do you remember the Friday Rock Show? The only place. Tommy Vance. Tommy Vance, the music vendor. I thought I might take just steal his jingles. And then I was like, but you're the motoring historian. But then I listened to the the Saxon one, Rock with Tommy Vance. Do you remember that one? I might just he had some cool one. ones to be now fair. I've said it. Now I've said it. I'm gonna start this show with it. And if the BBC wanna fuck me for copyright. Is Tommy Vance still alive? No. Oh. No. Um, really interesting guy, actually. Really worth reading up on. And a really uh, interesting um, interesting bloke. Because um, he was one of the original Radio 1 DJs who was like out on, you know, like Radio Caroline when they were yeah. like the trawler floating in the North Sea. He was part of all of that. Which means that he was probably mates with Jimmy Savile and all of those kind of guys. So you wonder what went on from that kind of angle. Um, yeah, I though no, became, he became Tommy Vance because he was interviewed. He was in the states, like in the sixties, in the states in the sixties. I mean, how, how cool must that have been? But he was interviewed by a radio station. They were like, "We'll hire you on one condition: you have to take this name, Tommy Vance." Because the DJ we were going to hire was called Tommy Vance, but we fired him. He's not joining, but we've already recorded the jingles. So you just have to use his jingles and take his name. Is that okay? And, and Vance was like, yeah, of course. Like, you, you can call me whatever you like if you're going to give me a proper salary to work playing records. And, and yeah, yeah. So he was just open to the, you, you would put him more with, um, John Peel, because John Peel was one of those floating around in the North Sea guys, but it was in no way wrapped up with that whole Jimmy Savile, um, you know, taking advantage of uh, of young, impressionable, uh, impressionable people. The other one was Alan Freeman, and and uh, yeah, and and uh, I always I always loved him. He would always uh, I remember he played Wasps Shoot from the Hip. Which has the my emotions coming down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right, totally out of order, right? Yeah. And yeah, and much at the time, I remember thinking, did he know what he was? He knew what he was doing. Of course he did. He, and he was, and he was thinking the controllers at the BBC, they're just gonna, are they gonna say anything? It's like you know, I mean, it's yeah, actually mainstream metal, if you will call it mainstream at the time, but it was. Yeah, it was mainstream, but that was a deep B-side cut, which Fluff had uh, pulled out of the archive, maybe by the album. That's why I thought of it. The, the song is... Uh... In fact, I was talking about this with my wife the other day, was that, that she was saying, who's that band that every time they come on, I just know them and I hate them. They just give me a headache. And Ollie was like, Motorhead. And I was like, no, Wasp. She was like, yeah, Wasp. 
Molly was like, weren't they the ones that you went to and then got COVID? And Dana was like, yeah, that's about right. And so, yeah, it was them that I, uh, I love Wasp. And that's I love Wasp as well. There's nothing there's, wrong with Wasp. There's a sound that they have that Blackie Lawless has, which is just so unique. And yeah, uh, they're excellent. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely cool. So I'm going to jump straight to a quick fire question. Now that I add for you the that uh, Judas Priest or Iron Maiden? Hmm. That's a tricky one. Um I mean Judas Priest for me. I know Iron Maiden are a better live show now. I mean the thing with Judas Priest is if you take Judas Priest, you get about four bands. Because Judas Priest in the 1970s is very different to Judas Priest in the 1990s um, in terms of, I mean, you're comparing like, you know, staying class with painkiller. You'd be forgiven for thinking, oh, the singer singer sounds similar. Um, but um, you know what I mean? That's the greatness of Judas Priest, right? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, my mate Neil at university said exactly that. said like, you know, I should have been necessarily his thing. He was like, Jesus, they changed so much. He was like, who's this band? And I was like, it's Judas Priest. And then the next album, he's like, who's the his band? I'm like, dude, it's still Judas Priest. He's like, good God. Well, that's why OKK Downing's so bitter, right? Because although he didn't name and found Judas Priest, he's the only person in Judas Priest, as we know them, who was like in the band in the early 70s, like before Halford and Ian Tipton joined, uh, before Ian Hill joined, right? Tipton joins in the late 80s and writes British Steel and Screaming for Vengeance. So the anthemic, cheesy songs that put them, you know, that made them front and centre and that was part of the new wave of British heavy metal, that was Tipton. So I didn't realise this for ages. That's why there was, so there was always this tension between Tipton and Halford. This is future John interrupting. Of course, it's not Halford and Tipton or whatever drivel it was I was saying, Halford is the singer. Tipton and Downing had the rivalry that I'm talking about. Forgive my factual incorrectness. There's 20 minutes more of this heavy metal drivel. So you can jump forward if you want to learn about cars or if you want to be edified by the heavy metal drivel, stay. Now, do you remember in the album sleeve of Ram It Down, it credits the solos. And that's that's the pissing competition between the two guitarists, because I've never seen that done anywhere else. I don't know if they do that on the album sleeve of, of Painkiller. But, you know, whatever. These are artists at the peak of their form, right? And if people don't like heavy metal, they might not see it that way. But if you like heavy metal, you appreciate the fact that these are artists at the uh, at, at the peak of their form. Um and look, I mean, you get two uh, you get two bands with with um, uh, Iron Maiden, but not you get two singers is probably a better way to put it, I guess. Um, we still play Iron Maiden live I now, mean, like... and it totally fits the set. Bruce Dickinson can do everything Paul yeah. Diano did. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not knocking sure. Iron Maiden; um, they're, they're like again, a juggernaut, right. right? And what you can't underestimate about Iron Maiden, and uh, I've I've said this to you before that that Indian guy that that my wife used to work with who. So, who was like all about Iron Maiden, who is all about Iron Maiden, who's like, you know, dinner with Yannick Gers, that guy, right? He loves Iron Maiden because they came to India. They came. Nobody else came. 
And that's because nobody else figured out the money. Maiden find, found a way to figure out the money because Maiden had always done it Maiden's way, hadn't they? There was no airplay and yet they were still huge. They, they, yeah, they found an audience and they keep producing what that audience loves. And, you know, they've got a really interesting art style that they've managed to work for themselves as well. Uh, and, you know, they're catchy songs, you know. I mean, I, I've sort of checked out of buying every Iron Maiden on the basis that I feel with whatever album and volume of albums I've got, I've sort of got Iron Maiden anyway. Like, there's additional Iron Maiden out there, and I'm, I feel good about that because I'll get to it someday. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I don't have them on a lot, but I do love the stuff I've got. I, I still rate them, and I, I saw them recently and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. enjoyed them. And, and this tour, they're on at the moment with where they're, you know, I'm nowadays you can look at the set list, right? So what I do is I look at the set list like months before the gig and then do my best to forget it, right? Because you don't want to be like, because when I saw them, I thought they were going to play my favourite song, The Evil That Men Do. And then for some reason they didn't just at the gig that I saw them at, right? Which normally you wouldn't have been disappointed by that. It was a great gig, but I was like, are you going to put when, when's the evil that men do? I know the evil that men do. And then it, it never came. And, and that was, uh, that was disappointing. But so I'm going to do, a, I'm going to um, do you yeah, a spoiler but on this one. They open with caught somewhere in time and then straight into stranger in a strange land. Wasted years, the last song be like and last so i uh, and can i play with madness is in there as well which doesn't quite fit but is totally of the period isn't it it's it's that that time where <laughs> their sound yeah yeah that's off that's where their sound was totally still, in the um, top 40 and and where they've moved away from the rawness of the first couple of albums to this sort of synthesized like you know kind of hawkwind space rock kind of you know, Robert A. Heinlein kind of, you know, it was, it was, they were totally um, in a place of their own sort of visually and thematically, weren't they at that point? And that's what Karno loves about them. He loves the themes and the storytelling. And, and I think, um, you know, I think that stands out. The other thing that stands out about them now is that they're so like Bruce Dickinson is so electrifying live that, and all the other, they always were. I mean, like, I've seen them, I don't know, three, four times, maybe something like that. Um, and, you know, at, at big enough venues for them to have Eddie wandering around on stage and stuff and have the big, have the, the, um, the uh, Eddie version of, of the Sphinx. Well, you remember, you were there for that one, where he was behind the stage with the, the Eddie Gold Sphinx there, like shooting lasers out and shit. Well, we saw him um, on Fear of the Dark, didn't we? We saw him at Donington on Fear of the Dark and slept in my Cortina the night before and it rained. Remember, it rained and the car leaked and our sleeping bags got wet. Bring it on. Yeah. It was, I wasn't, it, uh, yeah, that's not what I remember particularly, but it was, um, you remember the it was a good event. Slayer. Um, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It's, they, yeah, yeah, it was sort of separated yeah. out. I, I was going to say, I, I rate Fear of the Dark. I mean, and it's the, the song itself, and it's a staple of Iron Maiden's live show now. And, and I, I totally. Yeah. Well, everyone likes to sing along to it, don't they? Yeah, well, I do. You know, I'm, I'm generally not yeah. one for like waving the lighter in the air. You know, I'm generally that's not no. my style. Well, you don't have to do that these days. You can hold up your mobile phone. That seems to be the thing. You turn the phone, mobile phone torch on and hold that up yeah. instead. I, only, yeah. I, saw, I mean, 
I saw that on a video the other day and I thought, yeah, that makes some more sense rather than burning your fucking hands. <laughs> yeah. 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 So we're going to Aerosmith, my 50th. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So that's my second question Aerosmith or Kiss? Um. Aerosmith, probably. Although I do like some Kiss. I would actually go Kiss. I would go Priest and Kiss. For uh... I don't think I like as many albums as much as I like of Kiss as much as I like the stuff like with Ragdoll and things like that on it. Ollie loves that song. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's he's got good taste like that. I mean, I always said it, but yeah, the um, there's loads of tracks on that album that are really good. Um, Yeah. And um, the uh, the one with Love in an Elevator and stuff is pretty good as well. Um, Did I forward you that um, clip, I uh, that film I had of, um, that my feed just gave me on YouTube of Slayer playing Die by the Sword in like a club in LA in 1985? Uh, I thought you, I think you mentioned it. Did you actually send I, I, Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. I'll add the link to, for, okay. for this because just not for nothing. They always were more, right? We've we've talked about. I feel like I can't talk about rock and roll now without actually putting them in there because not least, I don't want to rant about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? Because I understand why it has to be diversifying and inclusive, right? And and I understand why. No way, no how can you have Slayer in there? Because Ollie was like, "Why don't we listen to it?" And I'm like, "Really, Ollie?" Because there's just in every way it's offensive it's the 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 lyrical content is offensive it's you can't appreciate it unless it's loud and you're fully focused on it and and then i said it was discordant and my wife was like yeah utterly discordant no it's not utterly discordant that's overplaying it um it is discordant in parts um but it's not. Die by the sword well. in this club in 1985. I mean, King is strong, but Hanneman's solo is just beyond. It's it's as if the li- live. It's as if he hits the notes better than in the studio with the crappy production of Show No Mercy. Because listeners, if you weren't aware, Slayer's first album, Show No Mercy, and Metallica's first album, Kill 'Em All both suffer from rather poor production, which blunts their enjoyment by people who weren't there when it first came along, right? I think that's fair to say. It doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, the, uh, um, and I, you're right, because I don't know whether this is just through the prism of my having been there to listen to it the first time around, if you like, but there are several albums or bands, and I'm struggling to think of an exact example at the moment, I'm sure one will come to me, where they re-released remastered versions of the original tracks and it's shit. Um, there was a remastered version of Clayman by In Flames and it's not as good. I think that's an example. Let me double check. I have to double check on that. Malign In Flames. I like In Flames. They're a cracking band, but um, well, you can that, and it, it, and it's just one of those ones where that's still in the final cut of uh, the, the pod. It, it, your points valid and if it's not I'll, yeah 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 not, exactly. you'll still be here you'll hear it absolutely well look it's 
And it, but it's that sort of thing where you've got something because the bit where he goes ah, and screams in that track, like, and it goes into the sort of the, the wailing guitar in Clayman by In Flames, which if you haven't listened to it, listeners, this is a busting track. It's excellent. Um, but the bit where he screams is is really outstanding. And it's sort of they they overproduced it a bit. It lost some of the raggedy rawness, which diminished it for me. Maybe if I'd only heard the new version, it wouldn't have done. So I don't know because it's still good, but it's you know it's it, it's that sort of thing. I've they um I listened to uh, Megadeth. I've got some remastered versions um, that Mustaine has put out of some of the earlier stuff, and it's yeah, it's just not as good. You know, it's like well, I didn't need you to fix it. There was nothing wrong with it. You know, it's. I think there's a difference between um, remixing and digitally remastering. I mean, for um that album that megadeth album that came out when we were uh, when we were students um euthanasia um that one that's a that was a glossily slickly produced record which does better with you know the the latest remastering if you listen to that now it has a clearer you know it just it, it complements the sound more than doing the the original recording um yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I until somebody pointed out to me that the recording quality of Show No Mercy was bad, I hadn't really noticed. Um, and I was thinking about the whole thing with all of this talk about Motley Crue at the moment and backing tracks and all that kind of thing. Because I feel like when you see a band like Motley Crue, now Motley Crue particularly, um, Vince Neil's vocals are terrible, right? But in some ways, probably no worse than they were if you saw them at a club in, in the 80s where the sound system was shit then his his voice worked now his voice doesn't work but the point is that if what you're there for is the guitars and most rock guys uh yeah the vocals are there but the guitars are there if you're there for the guitars the guitar sound is better than ever because it's so well produced now i even thought that with wasp right um when i saw them and got covid um because blackie lawless has this back injury so he wasn't like moving around that much the back injury or whatever it was hadn't come out at that time but he wasn't moving around that much on stage and i was like you know i i was disappointed by the fact that the show wasn't as impressive as it was when we saw him like 15 years ago or whatever it was in uh wasn't it nottingham rock city we saw him at when he did the face he smeared himself yeah, with the, like, yeah, glowing yeah. Goop. and climbed up on yeah. the big speaker thing on the big mic thing that he had and and uh yeah the lent out over but the see, audience yeah it was pretty when cool. i saw him in san francisco just recently the sound quality bang on you know the bang on and and that's really what you're there for so you know it's uh it's a weird uh it's a weird thing how the live experience is changing as you know every even the live experience is digitized and produced now to a level that it, it didn't used to be able to yeah i mean i don't yeah i think that's still nice isn't it? and it's um but yeah no it's just it was just an interesting version i mean it, i think when you've listened to something hundreds of times and then someone goes back and tweaks it even if it's to sort of polish off a, a smudge or a smear you, you notice it and it sort of irritates you because it's jars from what you're expecting um it's like you've got you know you must have the same i've got the same thing and you often did the tapes for me and vice versa um where 
you hear the end of a track and you expect a different track to start than the one that actually starts on the next album because you didn't have it that way. And the mixtape you had at school, it went straight into like running wild or something like that instead. And so if you're like, well, hold on a second, this doesn't feel right. It should go did it, did it now. And it doesn't. Like, what, what is this shit? And, and then you're like, oh yeah, this is actually the album as it was produced. Well, by the and, and so now, right, because we listen on shuffle or we listen to individual tracks, you know, for, but for younger people or for anybody discovering heavy metal now, you're not discovering it as the individual records come out, you're discovering it, you know, en masse, right? So when you discover Slayer, there's not like raining blood 28 minutes and you're like, wow, like what just, what, what on earth just happened? It's not like that. There's like a dozen Mm. albums and you can read and pick tracks and as a playlist. And you know what I mean? It's the, the, the whole, discovery yeah. of music is uh is completely different now it does change it up because like yeah for the for band i assume and i don't know this but i assume bands are still producing albums in the fashion that it will be listened to through if you know what i mean or whether or not they've adapted to the stage that they don't expect that um certainly if you look at people like um beyonce and taylor swift from a sort of watching the news and being informed they certainly seem to have a holistic you know sort of themes and big stage shows and stuff that all work to a to a whole sort of theme and stuff. I think Kanye West did one in a similar way. He was like flying around the universe and stuff. Um, so they they have that sort of thing. So you would assume they still do it in the albums as well. But you're right, the, um, the sort of my brother, uh, younger brother is into his heavy metal. And uh, I would say to him, he was, oh, I love that Ram It Down track you sent me. I'm like, cool. Uh, yeah, it's excellent. The best, best solo of all time, uh, at least in my top three, certainly. Um, and I would ask him if he'd listen to the other ones on there and he'd say, yeah, I listened to like hard as iron. I'm like, well, what about the other ones? And no, because he didn't have the album. He had the he, YouTube didn't select, suggest the next one. So it suggested something else. So he drifts off onto, so yeah, you don't get to experience it quite in the way that it was produced by the artist, which is odd. So it's also, there's, there's something about the, the active seeking out of music you know the purchasing the going into the town center plymouth town center the buying of the cassette the like bringing it home and put you know there's a whole theater associated with it which is just completely missing when it just like passively arrives in a playlist it's it, it's why you you appreciate that people appreciate the culture in a in a different way but you don't realize at the time that you're consuming the media in that particular form it's a really interesting uh well, and it's it's interesting that like vinyl's coming back, and I think part of that is it's big, and I mean physically. I mean, you know, you can get a big picture on the front. It's a it's a ceremony taking it out of the package and like sweeping it down and then popping it on to play. So I think there's a sort of not there's a sort mm. of nostalgia. There is there's that. a sort of geeky um, like you know, well, yeah. what needle have you got? Like you know, careful. But also, you know, yeah, people, I think a lot of people aspire to scratching and stuff later Sorry? on. A lot of people, sorry, a lot of people aspire to do scratching and stuff as well, don't they? So there's yeah. a sort of, you know, there's that sort of kid myself that I'll learn to uh, yeah. learn to mix yeah. as well. Yeah, it's a little bit like the rise of uh, Ollie was saying he wanted uh, a Polaroid camera. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, I I find myself explaining to him just what a substandard technology it was, and then thinking, why are you pouring cold water on on his like interesting? Well, it's but it's it's the instant production, and now they're even quicker. 
Um, so it's there you are. There's a picture. You took that picture. Here it is physically. You can hand it to your mm. mate. That's different when you aren't enabled with a phone. You don't need you, you. You sort of lose the need for that, I suppose. But at his age, I guess he's not tech food up like that. Should we actually talk about cars for a bit? Oh, if you must. If we must, if we must. Uh, uh... So I, we have a structure, don't we? Well, don't I, mean, we? I mean, yeah, I, I do. I, I did send you that agenda and I have a slightly bigger one. And although we just digressed for uh, the length of many podcasts, um, we do have, have uh, so our first topic um, and I, I, I've got a silly tone there, but, but you know, the reality is this, the, the reason I put this front and centre is this partnership, I think this partnership between Ford and Tesla is enormous. I think it's the biggest news um, in the car space, um, probably of the year, I would say. Not, uh, you know, I, I'm not like trying to compare new stories. I, I've just... So it's future John interrupting again. Um, this piece was recorded in those couple of days where Ford had made the announcement. And then it was maybe, I don't know, that was maybe the Monday and maybe the Friday. That was when GM and Rivian on the same day made made an announcement. So um, this, it's a moment in time, this uh, this particular piece, because other people came along with those announcements so soon. But I do feel like this fundamental divide that you're either with Tesla or you're not. And the points that I, I make in, in this piece remain valid. You may disagree, but whatever. You're the one listening. I'm the one talking. And we have said on the pod before that the main reason to buy a Tesla is probably not to do with the design of, of the vehicle, but to do with the fact that you can, you know, be in your own special express line you know, to get your car charged up if you're actually going outside of the range of the vehicle. Whereas, you know, the dude with the Taycan has to be in line with everybody else, which, and, and what they tell me is that, at least in America, you know, the Tesla one's, you know, nice and feels premium. And, you know, the charging station that, you know, Electrify America or whatever have done that you're going to be using it with your Taycan and that every non-Tesla person is using a completely substandard. So what I'm saying is I feel like Ford looked at the actual nub of the problem and fixed it in a way that is going to leave guys like Toyota and Hyundai and GM out in the cold. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, and I scanned an article about it earlier on and, you know, the main point of its article was where does this leave the rest of the motoring industry and talked a bit about the different standards of connector, one which Tesla have and one which all the others were using and then now Ford's abandoning um, to go with Tesla's one uh, as a standard. Or well, they're, they're not. I think I, what they're saying is they're going to develop an adapter that allows Ford's to talk to the Tesla one. So they're still in natively on the other one, 
but then they the article i read suggested that in future they would be building cars with the with the tesla version um well haven't tesla done some full self-driving when it's actually beta self-driving haven't they done some you know over naming where they they've called their proprietorial standard they're like microsoft windows they've called it like the national american standard connector or something like that they, yeah. there's some yeah they um, have done exactly that yeah um so, so it's a land grab it's a land grab isn't it and and for well, you're, the, you're right i mean the, the the key point i think um and i read an article a couple of articles about this deliberately because you know electric isn't necessarily my thing right now but i can it's going to be and it's going to be everyone's and so therefore i'm keen to see the tech advance successfully um and excitingly um but you're right the main problem especially in the uk at the moment is there just is not the capacity charging capacity space for everyone there just isn't if, if we're going to stop making at cars at the rate on petrol at 2030 and then transition people in over the next 10 years off even at the rate they're doing it it needs to accelerate like manifold otherwise it's just going to be you know over christmas last year there were queues at service stations of two or three hours uh, on specific weekends driving down to the southwest you know, because if you're going to go down to cornwall for christmas you're going to have to stop a few times from london so um and for a reasonable amount of time so that is not exciting also i read an article by a gentleman in wales who was driving a, a, a electric um for a, for a piece for the paper um and he said that you know he he didn't mind some of the places he charged up but he wouldn't want his wife charging up at those places because they were sort of out of the way and around the back and not very well lit and a bit dingy and and from my perception or at least what i've seen the tesla ones tend to be a bit more front and center and well lit and um well if you're gonna buy something that you know your wife's going to be driving home late on her own in and one around the back by the bins with a shitty fucking connection like that's that's not acceptable i don't understand what's wrong with the volt design right where it uses electric power and when the battery's flat it has a gas motor that powers the so every now and again you have to put gas in it if you drive a longer distance if you don't drive a longer distance and, and it's completely seamless i use it around the town I plug it in, it never needs gas. I drive up to Napa at the weekend. I don't need to worry about whether or not it's got charge. It does 20 miles or 50 miles or 70 miles on the electric. Then it goes on to the gas and I just drive it like a normal gas car. I, I mean, if if I can charge it at the hotel, great. If I can't, no problem. You know what I mean? It, it's That seems to me to be the perfect solution. I have no idea why everyone only wants the, the the plug-in to me that's like one hand tied behind your back yeah it's it, it'll be interesting to see what happens because something's going to have to shift because it's not going to work on plan at the pace they're planning it so did you see the launch of the faraday future ff91 this week <laughs> couldn't get any more f's in that no i didn't oh Dude, well, the first thing is, is, is uh, as you said about the Lucid, it's like they could have designed anything and they designed a blob. It's, it's, it's a bit of that. But um, the launch is absolutely fascinating. It is a one and three quarter hour online extravaganza, right? Um, 
you know we've talked before and we've said when is the chinese skyline going to come you know when are they going to stop copying and borrowing other people's designs and when are they actually going to embrace their own culture in some way shape or form and create something which is uniquely chinese this might be it this may be be it um the way that do you remember the 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 thing that was in the 1980s was kind of amusing about the japanese so they'd have these crazy acronyms for everything like you know the, the one i like at the moment is acura's s-h-a-dash-a-w-a-a-w-d i don't do other people think it's shoud i mean super handling all-wheel drive but it's ridiculous right it, it, it's they they still do this a little bit in the 80s they used to do it uh, an awful lot this faraday future has what they call this six by four architecture and it's some like and there's like six pillars and there's four values and they multiply together and it's all like absolutely like i i watched the first half an hour of it up to the fact up to the way up to when they started talking about how it it had three 5g networks available like so the car has one but then front and back seat passengers can have their own personal connectivity completely separate from the fact that the car has all these crazy screens and and all this kind of of connectivity uh in it um they're talking about spire marketing i googled it and they seem to have made that term up there's a company called spire but this spire marketing they keep talking about and and by this i mean i think they mean pinnacle i think they mean that because they're talking about being better like they 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 are comparing themselves with ferrari and bugatti if you can believe i mean um I don't know. I mean, I don't see the. I, I don't see any appeal really in these fat, fuck off, great fat SUV like heavy as balls. Like you're still killing the planet. You're killing the planet worse. Like you, you couldn't make a more less eco decision if you tried. Um, it's. I mean, and, this one. This, this Faraday has a thousand and fifty horsepower. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it has, and, and, you know, I believe them that it has all the like, you know, feedback and, you know, it drives and, and I find myself thinking, you know, the reality is that if, if you, if you look at what cars are going to be like in 2035, electric cars, the best, you know, the best electric cars now are going to be what, you know, medium electric cars are like in, in, so in, in other words, the cars that you and I are driving at the moment are going to feel very previous generation. And I feel like, you know, maybe like the way that 80s cars might feel now. And I feel like as we move through the century, we're going to get to a place where just as a 1920s car, like a 50s car, you can just about use on the road at the moment. It, there's issues, but you can use it. Go back to the 20s, there's far more issues 
it's even more inconvenient. The lack of performance is even worse. The lack of safety makes it even more bonkers to want to do it. You know, the, 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 the technology has moved on that far. So I feel like by the middle of the century, you will be able to look back. You will, uh, that's by the middle of the century, these electric cars that are all able to talk to each other, which is Faraday future three, it's got three levels of AI, right? They're saying that they developed the car to have general AI capability, a personalized AI capability. And then what they assume spire users will have which is their own personal secure private ai environment and they've developed an architecture to make all of this talk together um i mean this is chinese yeah yeah i mean that's a lot of information to share with the chinese government yeah Absolutely. Let's not mess about. There's a lot of middlemen, but essentially any information you share with a Chinese company can be accessed by the Chinese government. Um, and now, look, you know, I'm not a U.S. citizen, so my emails coming in and out of the U.S. can and be can be intercepted by the U.S. government. So this is not a an entirely parochial problem that China's dealing with. Although, let's be honest, they're doing it more effectively and more sinisterly in lots of ways. But nonetheless, it is pervasive. Um, and a lot of that stuff's coming out with the face recognition te- technology being driven by standards by the, the Chinese government. Um, so the, it's an impressive, uh, amazing piece of kit. And the other thing you didn't mention, I had a look at the website whilst you were chatting, is their double density lithium ion batteries that, that allegedly push this huge Leviathan to 300 plus miles of chart between charges. 381, which, they reckon. Yeah. Um, which, if that's true, is an amazing piece of kit, although I suspect not at, whilst you're giving it full beans at a thousand horsepower down the drag strip. Um, but nonetheless, who knows? No, and, and uh, you know, I, I it, it, so this week um, I sat in a Tesla played and uh, the, the guy that was, was showing it to us works for Tesla. And uh, one of the students in, in the group was like, uh, um said to me what did i think of the you know what did i think of it and and the tesla guy made eye contact with me and was like i bet he doesn't think it's really a car and i was like you know what absolutely because when teslas first came along they felt like they were so next generational they felt like something different from what had had gone before and I feel like this Faraday, the lucid and now the Faraday, you know, the futuristic blob with the mega technology that can do, you know, the Faraday guys, they talk about it being three kinds of car, right? They talk about it being an SUV, a hypercar and a sedan. You know, it, it's that whole, like, that whole, this, this whole conception of a product is not as i've understood cars to be and not how people living in the 20th century understood cars to be so there's a sort of of the other thing they said right and i do think this is this is interesting is they said we've we've lived through the age of the hardware defined car 
and through the age of the software defined car we feel we are now entering the age of the ai defined car i mean that's just bullshit ais are not that developed if you watch the launch one of the most astonishing things about it is there's a sort of elon musk and desantis on twitter kind of gaps between the different presentations they do and the language in the uh, captions and the language that the people use is not quite the same and maybe and i'm wrong you know maybe i am wrong i mean it depends where you, what you plug has, in and how you plug it in i i you know with 400 miles range who gives a fuck right nobody's driving that thing 400 miles right anybody anybody wealthy enough to buy that thing is going to fly if it's over 200 miles they're not going to sit in the car for all that time right so that range is the only way that range becomes an issue is if you know let's i mean our friends in la santa monica to santa barbara um drive the thing around if you know facilities to charge at the house in santa barbara because it's a rental house um so unless you remember to like charge it at the country club that you're a member at you know you have to be a bit careful because you might not have enough charge to get back to santa monica well that is that that's what a 400 mile range does for you a 200 mile range you you, you like need to charge it every time you, you you're using it it just puts you in a totally different um kind of uh, kind of frame of mind but no I, i'm totally with you that these great big heavy fat things they they remind me of um of the way that that cars were before the model t that you could only really make money uh making luxury cars so everybody made the and famously you know the ford ford's board didn't want him to make the model t they wanted to make it, him to make the model k which was a luxury model that they knew they could make money on and and so i feel like we're at early doors at the moment where you know where but but there's um i just feel like i feel what's fascinating about faraday is that the company are a total startup who are i i mean i i've not driven the car i'm not a spire buyer so i have no idea how you know the comparison process of a you know, wealthy oil scion in the Middle East. I don't know how he's going to compare this with, you know, the AMG Benz or the Ferrari or the Bugatti or whatever else he was, you know, I've no idea what his comparison reference point is. It, mm. It's just, uh, but I mean, it's, you know, some of the questions that spring to the, you know, beg to be asked, are, are, there's no point in asking. It's like, you know, like, why has it got the 1,080 horsepower? Because is the answer to that because if you're having an all singing all dancing hotel room on wheels that does everything for you then you know when you get the opportunity to show off to your the, the, the other sheikh's son you want to be able to blow his other whatever he's got off the track when you blast down you know for the once in a, in a lifetime when you give it a, a squirt so in you know have all the horsepower um and i mean that sort of rocket ship performance is exciting you know um it, so yeah i mean there's, there's little arguing with that but I was thinking about what it is, is it feels like the wrong direction to me just because it's so heavy. Um, and 
when I think about the most pure driving enjoyment you get, it's almost always from stuff like caterums, which couldn't yeah. be more at the opposite end of the scale in terms of less technology and add enormous amounts of likeness. Um, so, but then most people aren't looking for that. Most people would just want yeah, well, that, And that's the thing about bikes, isn't it? The, the, the reason that bikes are so much fun is the shittiest motorcycle delivers better feedback than just about the best car I've ever driven. Yeah. You know, it's a different experience, but you're on fundamentally, it. Yeah. That makes it a big difference. The, you know, being hit by the wind and the flies makes a huge difference. Mm. Um, and it but takes a while when you haven't been on a bike to get used to the floor being just there. The floor is always just there. It's just usually there's a door in the way. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking that I, I was um, thinking about how in a lot of cars, um, if you really think about where you sit, you sit very close to the front wheel. Mm. You know, you want to sit on top of the, the, the front, the front wheel. You know what I was thinking about it? I was thinking about it because of the way that, um, certain vans had that cab over design years ago. Um, you know, vans, I, like the first generation of Conline, but because basically there was the headlight bucket and then your, the pedal box and your feet. So, you know, there was like, that's why they put, that's why later Econolines have that little nose on them is just to have a little bit of crumple zone so that you're less likely to be injured in, in even a small fender bender. And of course, vans like European vans, like the Morris J9 or the Citroen H van, they, uh, they put you even, uh, you know, closer to the, closer to the front. So um, in the first blog, we talked about um, 44 teeth, the YouTube channel that we, uh, that we both enjoy. And we talked about their correspondent, um mike booth um he had that <laughs> unsuccessful trip to the tt last year when sponsored by uh when sponsored by us um we should say um we sponsored him as part of our um literary fantasy literary literary venture the chronicles of of halvar and clarence so we had halvar and clarence.com on his helmet and then felt bad when he fell off and, and injured himself pretty badly. But even with one leg, Mark, he is back at the TT this week. Did you see that? I haven't seen the video, but I saw him. I watched one of the videos where Al was racing that um, BMW thing uh, as one of the warm-up races on, at, the, at the BSB paddock stuff. I think it's a BSB. Either way, it's, it's, they're, there's, they're, they're racing these BMW uh, one-make series. And he was having a cracking time, and Boothie was like legging up and down the pit lane, carrying tire warmers and um, rims and other bits and bobs because it was sort of wet, dry race, and like looking extremely sprightly. And I was delighted to see it. Yeah, it, it's uh, this is why I wanted to to raise the topic on the pod just to uh, round out the story. Yeah, yeah, and of course we know that this stuff, you know, it's not just because he seems chipper. That doesn't mean it's it's fixed. Yeah, just because he seems chipper, that doesn't mean that it's fixed. But but we can say that the you know um, yeah, it's just good to see him in in good spirits. Um, on the theme of of the the TT, I've uh, I've a couple of other things. That should we do the happy news first or the the sad remembrance first? Which do you want? Uh, well, let's, uh, go on, let's do the happy news first. 
Peter Hickman's 133 mile an hour lap. My boy's on fire. Photograph on Twitter of Michael Dunlop at Hillbury with the wheel right against the curb, like using the full width of the road. But, you know, the runoff, the only, the, there'd be a no runoff, the runoff being a curb with a, with a drain and a double yellow light. Yeah, um, a lot of them. 20 years since Dave Jeffries was killed. 20 years. Yeah, man. Which uh, is astonishing. It, 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 it's a reminder of your own uh, your own mortality that in that 20 years, you and I have gone from being, you know, considering ourselves young, even though we weren't, to, to being like, wow, we're now not young anymore. So it's a remarkable uh, transition. And, and we remember... Dave Jeffries, I, I, here's why I want to remember him, right? Because those bikes were heavy bastards. They were fast. And the way that they rode them, they made about as, you know, they were about as fast as modern bikes. Yeah, sure. Down about 50 horsepower on, on modern bikes, but they were pretty much as fast as modern bikes, but heavier with, not so good brakes, not so good tires. The whole piece was was different, and it always struck me about Dave Jeffries that he was good because he was a big guy. And instead of that, like hurting him with the arrow, it helped him actually muscle the bike into the corners and made him faster. He was just faster, um, and you know, he, yeah, I think it was you. I can't remember. It was it? Maybe probably you that told me that. Um, because he was a big lad, he didn't do so well or get get proper rides on the short circuit stuff so much, and therefore always seemed to put in a bit of extra, you know, one hundred and ten percent kind of cheese on on the TT um, to sort of reestablish and show how, how quick he was. And and boy, did he! Uh, he was a, a, a awesome to behold. Yeah. So uh, twenty years since mm. the passing of Dave Jeffries. So nominally, we uh, were going to talk about your visit to France and and the POW po. Grand Prix. So give me the, uh, what was it, your sales manager used to call the, the seven soldiers, the who, why, what, when, how. Give me the uh, the SP. Yeah. Um, so it's PO, as I was informed by the lady whose house we stayed at last time I was down there when I was calling it PO um, or POW or whatever I was calling it. But yeah, it's uh, it's quiet little town pow is like something batman would do exactly it? and that's what she told me off of calling it it's poe you know rather than pal um but it's a lovely it's a charming little town um just on the river um down in um just north of the pyrenees uh southern france about two and a half hours south southeast of uh bordeaux um we flew in there and then drove down and got a little, little uh, fiesta um yeah and we when we stayed there last year just to like be in the area and check it out um and do some of the mountain passes, which are really beautiful. Um, and there's some cracking roads if you go down there towards Spain. Um, but 
Yeah, we, we uh, stayed there and they mentioned that there was this Po GP sort of race and they do um, they do over two weekends. Um, they do sort of modernish stuff um, and then they do the Po, the po Historics, which we went to see. Um, and it's about a one and a half mile circuit around the town centre, reasonably twisty. Um, but because the, it is street circuits, it's the classic Monaco stuff. So if you book your hotel early enough, and we booked um, a nice hotel on the corner just by, above the chicane. You can basically rent a room with a with a balcony where you can sit out on the balcony all day uh, and watch motorsport. Um, and I highly recommend it. On the Saturday morning, we were, we arrived on the Friday night. There was qualifying. There was, there was sort of um, uh, there was racing or at least um, qualifying you know, practice on the Friday as well, but which we missed. But Saturday morning at about eight o'clock or seven forty-five. I was woken up by the sound of like V8s and V6s like roaring past just outside the window down 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 a couple of floors, which was awesome. Um, so it's like that scene in Le Mans, like that scene in in John Frankenheimer's Grand Prix where Jessica Walters is in the bed, in bed with a hangover and the race is going on outside the window and she's like, ah, I hate the noise. Yeah, yeah. It, it, although I was loving the noise. I never thought I never thought of the sheer convenience of one's grandstand being Oh dude, it is so on the side of one's room of one not needing to get dressed, of one being able to sip one's coffee while oh, you know. it is it is it is, the, it is the best. So let me I mean I will uh, look up the hotel because they were very nice and uh it's essentially the the tri- if you imagine the track like a clock face we were at about uh one o'clock half past one around the round there uh, and there's it comes around the outside of a park on the edge of town um and um uh, here we go um it's sort of it's a clockwise um circuit and we we stay in the uh, park beaumont hotel um which is just on the outside of the track so you can you rent in advance it's not the cheapest because it's a five-star hotel i wouldn't usually stay in that sort of thing but it's I think including breakfast for three nights, it was like 900 euro um, for a room with a balcony overlooking the track. So we sat outside. They, I don't know whether we were the last to book because all of the balconies had sort of floors above with the balconies over them. So they had a bit of a roof, whereas ours didn't. It was sort of on the end. So it was just open. But most of the time it was lovely and sunny. So we just sat out there with the shades on. With it, with it took, took the stuff out of the mini bar fridge and loaded it up with beers from the local Carrefour, uh, and uh, sat out there in the afternoon having a little uh, cold one, watching the uh, watching the cars zoom by. Excellent way to spend a couple of days. Dude, that sounds pretty bucolic. I would go to. Oh, I would recommend. I, it. Actually, I purposely, I know you'd been, but I purposely hadn't like engaged with the whole thing until we talk now. And the standout for me. I really hadn't grasped the convenience of your bedroom and the loo right there, and then the balcony right there, and your like mini bar with the beers in. That that is that's an elevated. Uh, Dude, I mean the, the other thing is about it. it. It's a five star hotel, yeah. So the restaurant downstairs, there's Le Jeu de Pomme, which is a little fight, a little restaurant that we looked up. I was looking out the window and I was watching the cars go past. And down to your right on the first evening, I was looking through. And it's the classic sort of stone stone french building big shutters and of course it's the end of a, of a beautiful day the shutters are all thrown open it's a restaurant so there's like trestle tables in there and you can see people like holding forth and drinking their bottles of wine having a lovely time in there well that restaurant runs the restaurant in the hotel as well 
Um, so on the Sunday night, it was booked for the Friday night for the Saturday night. But they do because it, it's a it's a five star hotel. There's room service up until midnight. So we arrived on the Friday night and I ordered a burger and chips up to the room and a, and a bottle of wine. And, you know, certainly they do like, you know, I, I think I had a nice pasta on the Saturday. You don't need to leave the room. You just have amazing food delivered to you all day. Um, and breakfast is included downstairs. So you can go downstairs, wander outside and stand by the pond where all the grunouis, the little frogs that later on in the evening, you think, what the fuck is all that racket? It's the frogs. <laughs> they are going for it down there, having their springtime shenanigans and get letting the world know as all these frog chorus the whole evening. But, you know, up until about, I think, 9.30 on the Saturday night, there were still cars thrashing around. At one point on the Sunday, I wandered off to the Carrefour to get some some bread and cheese and a bottle of uh, bottle of badois and some wine to sit on the balcony and eat that for lunch. Again, don't, don't overcomplicate these things. French bread and cheese with a bottle of wine on the balcony, as Clotaire would have us do it, is the way to do it. Don't fuck about, just have it awesome. Um, and uh, I was walking along and a guy parked up next to me as I was carrying the rucksack with the stuff back from the thing. And I was like, oh, wow, an original Alpha GTV. Like, that's that's a nice car. Really red, like really nice, like proper Alpha GTV. Um, and then behind him, I was like, hold on a second, have I stumbled on something? The next car was like a 430. The next car was a 488. The next car was a, was a um, I think it was a McLaren. Then there was about nine Porsches in a row of like 911s there was a night because i thought oh there was a white carrera gt4 then there was a white 911 gt3 um and then a whole bunch of different boxsters and stuff as well and turns out when i got back up to the room they were doing laps of the track so it was a big sort of queue of people who'd obviously on what i didn't know if you have to book or have a certain amount of cars but i think you have to have a certain period of car a notable car and you have to register in advance but if you do so you can go and drive the truck. So on the Sunday, they were like had a half an hour where the these punters were taking their sort of their pride and joy around the track that they just watch people thrashing about. So it's like I think it's like forty quid for forty euros for the day for paddock access, and you can sit in any stands. And the stands weren't particularly busy um, on the Sunday for the sort of the big races in the afternoon. The stands were, were that I could see were moderately full, but most of the rest of the time because there's so much of it. It wasn't all that busy. So, you know, we didn't get, unfortunately, annoyingly, obviously, partly because Angie's struggling with mobility at the moment until the, until the operation, but we didn't get out and about too much. But, and I didn't want, I, I could have gone over on my own. She was happy, more than happy for me to get to her saying I should, but I didn't want to leave her. We're only down there for the weekend. I want to leave her for like four hours while I wander off to the to the uh, other side of town to look at cars on my own. So, um, and I would, you know, at the end of the day, they drove more past the window. <laughs> it's quite easy to be passive when they're delivering you your uh, auto porn um, about 50 feet below you. So, um, and yeah, just being able to sit there and watch it. I mean, next year I'll take a better camera uh, and the tripod in the luggage, and then I'll be able to set up and do like really cool video. And I'll get a, a slightly different room so I get a better view of the chicane because there was a tree in the way. But yeah, you're nitpicking. I only booked it like three months before the event, and I still got a balcony overlooking the uh, the track. The people in the hotel were absolutely lovely, um, really charming. When we arrived, there was no parking spaces except the disabled space, so I just parked in it, went in and told them, and they and the guy went, "It's fine." <laughs> I was like, "Well, there's no other spaces now, and there's no disabled space." He went, "It's fine." And that was the end of that. So. No problem. It's like when I'd parked in Italy and I asked if there was a hotel parking space and they said, yeah, definitely. And then I got there, there was about 20 spaces 
and I think there was at least 20 people in the hotel. So we did get one, but I ended up parking underneath the hotel in what looked like the sort of actual owner's place, just rammed in against the walls, hoping that he could get out. And when I told one of the, the ladies who worked there, um, she just shrugged and went, is it on the hotel grounds? I said, yeah. She went, and then walked off. <laughs> so they were pretty tranquil and continental about that whole thing. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, it was a little bit expensive, um, but for the access you got, you, you can't knock it. It really is your sort of mini Monaco experience. So bunch of different races. I had a look at the timetable and we'll put a link in, in for, for that. Um, from your perch on the balcony looking down from on high um did his majesty have any cars that he would have been particularly interested in taking home or driving or just that he would like to offer comment on uh i mean uh, i would have taken home probably half the 911 field the porsche field would have probably my garage would have gone from none to lots pretty quickly um I liked the AC Cobra. Um, I liked, I think it was a 275 that was in that field I rather liked as well. There were several of the cars milling around the place I would have taken. I mean, it, it was it was, it was was really an eclectic event. Um, and, you know, the, the little, um, I, I don't even know what they were, that little one-make series of cars that I sent you, the ones of them like hustling it around, um, the ones that looked like something, a sort of mini version of something out of a, the anthill mob kind of ones, those little ones with them, um, you know, the sort of oh, legends where it's like got a, it's a, yeah, I know those where it's like a midget, like a modern midget racing series. Tony Jardine it, has one. Yeah. Well, I'm, either I'm, way, I'm, those yeah. things that they were, they were rinsing them uh, and uh, plenty of like opportunity to see them like slithering around the S bends outside. Um, that like cracking entertainment. Um, and it's it's one of those ones where again I was looking in the classifieds afterwards, and um, it don't, you don't have to look very hard in the back of a copy of Motorsport to be finding cars you could pick up for less than you know a, a less than a ridiculous amount. So you know twenty thirty grand for a car that is pre Goodwood qualified or pre Po or Porsche historic classy certified and stuff. So these sort of things are available to people if you can go out and do this and sort of get yourself through the um the eligibility requirements and stuff so i don't know whether that's actually feasible but i like the idea of it um so it, it sort of retains a sort of an, an attainable sort of distant perhaps but um participatory sort of nature that might be something that one can explore so i don't know it's unlikely but so you never know how these things pan out um it's not a ridiculous amount of money to get in and it's sort of i like the, i like the racing it, it was um the whole the whole thing has a sort of really sort of warm and friendly kind of feel but again as i said the lady that I, we spoke to that we stayed with last year she said that this town sort of split some people are interested some people are just annoyed that it limits access to around the town center and is noisy as fuck for about a week and a half um yeah and they have to sort of go around building up the barriers and putting stands in place for like months beforehand so you know i can understand why that would irritate you I do a conference with uh, with a Belgian academic and, uh, um, you know, he made the point that obviously academia is a fairly left leaning kind of, of environment anyway. Um, and maybe his point was maybe Belgium's a left leaning country, um, but the 
attitude of other Belgians to automobiles is he said it's best compared to smoking. So in other words, it's something that was once socially acceptable, but is now not socially acceptable, is positively and is, is looked on as as harmful and how the people and and if it's if you're somebody who is still you know who is still a smoker you're willfully damaging the environment of the people around you and you know are you people wonder at the mindset and and he 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 rounded out the conversation and i'll never forget this by saying so that's why my mum and dad live in scotland and my dad has a stick shift five liter mustang a new gt and that was <laughs> i mean i've been to belgium i've been through belgium on several occasions i've been aiming to go to belgium once with you and chris um and we milled around belgium town center for a bit and decided that we were better off renting a car and going to amsterdam yeah brussels was boring wasn't it there were the was cows boring, yeah. there were the cows Though even the naked ladies place wasn't very good. We were still of an age where we went to naked ladies places, weren't we? And even that wasn't very good. <laughs> no, we were better off renting that Ford KA and sleeping in it, three of us. Yeah, I can't believe we did that. I was looking at, I was watching one of the YouTube channels that I watched and, and there was like a, a Ford, a car show and there was a Ford KA or car or however you say it, still don't know. Um, and I'm like, looking inside it and thinking yeah it's, it's roomy inside but roomier than you'd expect from the outside but roomy enough for three men like we but yeah but we did manage it didn't we yeah yep maybe that was why we didn't have the energy for the naked ladies or um mark remember where we parked it like someone nicked the aerial off the top of the car as well i forgot all about that yeah mm. parked it on the outskirts of amsterdam we didn't we we did that the John Summers patented street park. It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, apart from the fact that someone knew the area. <laughs> but the rental company didn't notice when we gave it back. So that was all right. Um, so there is a really famous motor racing history story in which I, if I'd have been prepared, I'd have read up on it so I could give you the full song and dance. But, but Poe, how is the only place where the silver arrows the original nazi era silver arrows were ever beaten this is the 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 story um so you might say well did, were they dom so so what period is this is 34 to 39 and 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 at this time poe is a non-championship race that occurs early in the year. So this one particular year, Auto Union choose not to go. Mercedes-Benz send two cars. I think the story is one car was binned in practice. The other car was not geared for Poe. It was geared for Spa or, well, it wouldn't have been Spa, would it? Because that always came late in the year, but it was geared for like the first race of the season. That might have even been Tripoli, the Malhalla circuit, which, and I just want to say, I've rambled onto this, but this is why I do this, this pod, so that I ramble onto these things. I'm just going to ask you now, when I'll add some pictures, is Google up some pictures 
of the Tripoli Grand Prix circuit. And uh, specifically, the circuit was called Melhala, M-E-L-H-A-L-L-A. It was all like fast sweeping turn. In period, it was faster than Spa as it was. Faster than Nürburgring, faster than Monza. I mean, it was, and it was like all, it, uh, you know, Mussolini's like continental you know, Mussolini's imperial ambitions. So it had these like one, these wonderful pits and palm trees and, you know, sweeping turns. And it was meant to be this showcase where people could come and see, you know, how marvelous the Italian empire was really uh, uh, an interesting piece. So anyway, so my understanding is, is the car was geared for that track or was geared for another track. Anyway, this is the, the, the story. And, it's all wrapped up with, and I can't remember how and this is why I should have done some reading around it. But have you heard of this, the, the Million Franc Prize? Have you, you heard of this before? You're not. I've heard of it, yeah. I mean, this is this big deal in the 1930s where the French government put up a million dollars for anybody who could beat the Germans. So the first thing they did was have these speed trials at Montlery, you know, the bank track just outside Paris. And mm-hmm. all the different French manufacturers went and competed. And then one manufacturer, I can't remember who, uh, the, the whole story of the winning of the Million Franc Prize is better than the story I'm going to tell. But I forgot that one a lot. It was a race and the guy who won, you know, it was... Yeah, it was a race to the race. And then in the race, the guy that was going to win didn't win. And, you know, it was all super dramatic. Anyway, the winner of the Million Franc Prize was this, I think it was a Delahaye that was kind of a sports car and kind of, anyway, this one day in Pau, Po, this Delahaye driven by a French bloke who later opens a restaurant in New York and is a good raconteur and storyteller. Dreyfu, I think his name was, um, beats the Silver Arrow, beats the the Nazis. And I think the really interesting thing about the story, for me, the interesting thing about the story was the the way in which the you know the Mercedes factory version is all about, you know, the car having the wrong gearing and whoever it was binning it in practice whereas the french version is is this sort of patriotic kind of and and the story has has sort of gained i I guess i first encountered the story when i encountered that collector peter mullen and was doing that work for his museum because part of that work was looking at each of the cars and understanding the story of each of the cars and if this beating the silver arrow story was really true then that made that car uh worth talking about a lot more than 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 the others but you know i just um yeah i i i suppose uh maybe i did remember the story quite well i've remembered the story reasonably well i've probably i you know what you want malaha by the way m-e-double-l-a-h-a I looked it up. 
thank you. I'm only saying that for the for the listener. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, this this these pods are riddled with this kind of factual incorrectness, right? Yeah, yeah. And this is because it's meant to feel like a conversation, right? Yeah, we're I, old farts remembering. I could go back and I could edit out the facts. I could edit out all the bits where I'm wrong, but then it wouldn't be natural anymore, would it? Right. So what's unnatural is you listening to it maybe 15, 20, 100 years after we're saying this. What's unnatural is you holding me to some factually correct standards. The internet can do that for you, right? Can't it? You know? Yeah, yeah. it's just literally for the for someone who might have looked it up on that spelling. I thought, well, I looked it up on the spelling. But as you say, the Googs is there in the background delivering the goods for you without you having to respell it. So it's uh, yeah, it doesn't really matter. So look up the Tripoli Grand Prix and it's exciting. Yeah, yeah, it looks pretty impressive. Film. It's uh, I can it's see why it was fast. Yeah, and this is your and this is the value add that I'm. How about this? Old Herman Lang race motorcycles in the twenties. Then the Weimar Republic collapsed. He had no money. He didn't know, you know, struggled around. Didn't know what to do. Took an apprenticeship at Daimler Benz happens to be a, um, a, he was Fagioli's chief mechanic. He was that good a mechanic, but he was Fagioli's chief mechanic. And the story is that there's, they're testing at Monza and on the train back from Monza, one of the Mercedes Benz designers is in the same carriage and there's banter between Lang and another mechanic who had also been a motorcycle racer in the twenties about some oil that had been borrowed and never returned. So they're bantering backwards and forwards. Oh, did you know that Lang used to race? Yeah. I didn't know that Lang used to race says the driver. Oh, it says the designer. Oh, says the other mechanic. Like he was really good. He like won everything, which he did, right? He had like a super dominant period that was completely derailed by, by what happened to the economy and the fact that he wasn't like rich or well connected in the way that say von Braukic was to be able to you know to 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 to, to jockey um uh lost my train of thought remind me uh we were talking about the Tripoli grand prix and then you went on to talking about Herman oh lang. lang lang i was talking about i was talking about the greatness of of lang and i was in the railway carriage on the way back from Monza, wasn't I? Where the designer and 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 so it comes out that Lang has this incredible history of of motorcycle racing. So from that point on, the designer works to overcome the fact that Lang is working class and a mechanic to give him a chance to drive the cars. And of course, Lang. So so literally, Lang goes from being having never raced. He's never raced in any other series before and he first becomes a team driver in 1937 that grand prix car that mercedes grand prix car was more powerful than any grand prix car until the renault turbo cars of the late 70s right 646 horses the stat i think it depended what fuel and whether you had the carbs right and and all of that but you know i uh more than 500 horsepower we can we can comfortably uh we can comfortably say on that circuit on that tripoli grand prix circuit he, these are these are epic stories and this is what i want to draw uh, attention to and and you know this is what i would have wanted to do where i at the po circuit was my have a sense of i mean is this story about the gearing is it a slow circuit i feel yeah. like you could 
it is it's a twist yeah, i mean there is a straight but like the bit around our place it was reasonably curvy and stuff so it's not a massively long so i think i said one and a half it might even be like something like 1.2 miles it's not hugely long but it's a pretty circuit i mean it's it's kind of cool it goes down along the front along the river and then doubles back and then comes up towards the sort of go around the big loop around the park and then through some chicanes and stuff um it, it, it's a cool little circuit. Uh, it, it's, um, yeah, no, I, I would like to give it, you know, thrash a car around, around there myself. But no, I can see how if you were geared for, yeah, because, yeah, that circuit looks a bit like the that Go circuit that we went to up at Rance or Reem, as we would pronounce it, I suppose, but uh, the French would, wouldn't, um, where they were racing their sports cars in the 50s and stuff. And I mean, it, it was fast. It's a big, wide, curved circuit. Um, yeah, Reams of... is Reams is your classic three, you know, three town yeah. triangle, which you know which was a classic of of it, it's it's a feature of French and Italian road race circuits. It's a feature of Irish road race circuits. The motorcycle stuff that we mm -hmm. talk about them having those insurance problems. Those are often you know three villages that are that are joined joined together. Um, but but you're right. Reams is is fast and open. It's it, it curves in places, and there are those sharp turns. But but it was um, different from uh, uh, I think different from Poe, which uh, power in more yeah. more twisty than. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, it's a street circuit, so it, it feels different. You know, it's um, I mean, Reams goes through the villages, but it's you know, what I mean? it's not. Uh, it's not the same. This is like quite tight and twisty in places. So I'm going to change gears completely now. Banger racing. Loved it as a boy. Loved it. Realised the other day that there's these series for like pre-90s bangers. Right. So in other words, cars which are now considered collectible. Being, you know, banger race to destruction. There's even competition between, you know, banger races. And this is this has gone on for a long time. And of course, the classic car guys have always cried about the banger racing guys smashing the cars up and the banger racing guys are like well you know if you loved it that much you should have restored it like if it's not worth any money what's wrong with us just racing it and smashing it up um the ethics of banger racing where do you stand do you give a shit um you could just say no and then i just have <laughs> to edit out this whole topic wouldn't i <laughs> I suppose I'd not considered it quite like that before, but uh, my immediate off the top of my head take would be somewhat more towards the banger racing kind of guy's perspective on the basis that, you know, a lot of the cars you see banger racing, I wouldn't save, you know, and even if they were good examples, I wouldn't be that interested in saving them. So more often than not, it's just dross that was about that would either be propping up other cars in a junkyard or is out there being raced and kept going to race week by week by enthusiasts to you know get their, cut their teeth smashing around him and if it makes them happy then i don't care i think it's, it's fair enough and it's quite good fun to watch my only my big problem with banger racing 
from a purist point of view is it's not really proper racing in a lot of ways. The banging takes a bit more precedence than I might have liked in terms of actually racing. I'd rather go go kind or something like that and actually be as quick as it can be rather than worrying about someone T-boning me out of left field for the lols. Um, I so... feel like that. It, it's got. A, I don't mind a bit of contact. No, no, yeah, yeah. But I, I feel that the the. I, yeah, I don't mind a bit of contact, but where contact is the main thing, that seems not much of a, of a sport. I agree. There's more banger than, than than racing. That bothers me. What really bothers me is that I just believe it's not cool to be destructive like that. Like the, the, it just feels inherently wrong. To be destructive so i could give you an argument that all those cortinas and granadas that you know you and i saw chewed up on the banger tracks of the of southern england in the 90s like all of them would be you know worth more money now well yeah they would be worth more money now and more you know ford guys would go to ford events and there would be you know the sea of surviving cortinas and granadas would be would be bigger and you might say you know well kind of it was fine in the 90s you know we didn't really lose that that much um i i, I don't know i i just feel like you know you can't save everything right and and i feel like when today's generation has gone the granadas and cortinas that have survived you know is there going to be another generation that cares about them and wants to preserve them i'm I, I'm, I'm not sure so I I see your they point. They become of view. more like PCs. They become more disposable in the sense that they lose character. Um, but then I guess the people who are used to their devices turning on and being super reliable, like a PC, would say, "I'll I'll lose your character and accept like you know flawless reliability, five nines reliability instead." Thanks. Um, so I, I don't know, but um, maybe character is another word for unreliability. Um, but it, it feels like the more the less you have to interact with it, the more it's like a program where you get in and say, take me here. Um, inevitably, it loses some of its charm because you have to engage less. So therefore, there's less of an emotional attachment to them, I suppose. All right. Quick fire. F40 or 959? F40. Me too. F40 or F50? Well, that's an interesting question. Evo did a, rep a sort of re a reprise of their original review of the F50 and said that actually on reflection, it was a much, much better car than they gave it any credit for in the day. And that nowadays on good rubber, it's an amazing piece of work. You know, a full on sort of F1 car for the road as it, as it was built with that engine and all that sort of stuff. But I'd probably still take the F40 no, I'd take the F50. I'd be interested I, uh, to drive it just because of the engine. You know what I mean? Even at the time when people were like, it was a bit fat and heavy and all of that, I, I still... It's still a stick though, isn't it? It's a stick with a Formula One. Yeah, you know, I'd take the F50. I mean, also, I love it. Also, part of what people didn't like was it developed... I, it was, I think it was partially developed by Michael Schumacher. So it has that Michael Schumacher really like sharp turn in, which a lot of people don't don't like. So... Yeah, no, I'll tell you. R32 or Focus RS? Which Focus RS? 
the contemporary one. No, I'd probably take the Skyline line. Oh, no, I mean uh, Golf R32. It's like hot no. <laughs> fight of the hot hatches. Yeah, that's what oh. using, isn't it? All these letters and numbers. We're, yeah, yeah. We're um, I'm not that asked about either of them, to be honest. I mean, I'd probably take the Ford um, on the basis that it's if, if it's the last one they did, it's the four-wheel drive, 350 sort of brake horsepower Banzai one. But the looks of them were a little bit unhappy, and I don't like paddle shifts. And they both are. Are they? There's not a manual box in the R Focus RS. I don't think so. The the Golf definitely isn't. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would have had. I would have the Ford. Um, you can get the Golf Club Sport in it with a stick shift, but that's the lighter version and not the four wheel drive one. Nine eleven, GT two, or four eight eight Challenge, whatever the like racy. Middle four eight eight, isn't it like the pista? I think. Yeah, whatever um, that is. Uh, that you take that over the GT two. I, I wouldn't. The GT two isn't the one I would choose. If I was taking a nine eleven, I'd have the R. I know you'd have a GT three touring, and so would I. Well, um, no, I'd have the R if I could get one, but they're like rocking or shit. You ain't getting one of those. Um, I think they're now commanding about a two hundred grand premium on what they were when they came out, and that happened within about six months. Um, so, but it's the it's essentially a souped up version. Well, it's the GT3, but with a stripped out version and sort of street package and a stick shift. Um, so it's essentially a 911 Touring in in um, in all but name. Well, it's it's a different version, and they uh, and I would have that one first if I could. But um, yeah, no, I, the, the the um, I still think all the reviews I've seen of Ferrari over the last 10, 15 years is when you get in the the four thirty Scuderia or the 48 Pista, or even the 360 Challenge Stradale, those special editions are gobsmacking. And although I would want the um, 911 probably more often, I think for the occasions when you could use the Ferrari, it would just be biblical. So, If you could have only one, would it be manual transmission or rear-wheel drive? Manual transmission. You could historic race any car, anywhere. What and where? Ooh, crikey. I'd like to, I mean, I, 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 it's difficult to say that you wouldn't want to do the, the original Mille Emilia in the 50s in something. Um, just because it's such a big race. You know, the, the, the sort of the scale of it is appealing. Um, We talked some years ago about, in fact, Mark Newton, who we had on the last uh, on the last pod, there found a road race prepared for Capri. This was like a Mercury Capri, but it had been built in Southern California, basically to like Ford Cologne Ford, like Capri RS twenty six hundred kind of of specification. Um, he found that car just a just quite recently and was uh I, so that car that was i mean the, the asking on it was like sixty thousand dollars so you know not in in my league at all but a beautifully prepared capri like that at spa that's what jumps into my mind i'd rather yeah. have a pre mark three actually now i think about it than uh than, than a mark one i'd like a 
as I stop and think about it, I'd do a spice Capri because I feel like I feel comfortable in a car that's that kind of size and has got that amount of of power. Um, you know that that's the yeah that's really where I've 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 been at recently is is I guess with all the sports bikes that I've got there's many machines that I have where there's an ocean of performance that I can't explore properly. I'm interested. Uh, the The vision would be something that I would feel like a Capri. I feel on top of that, I could attack Spa properly with with a machine that I felt that on top of. Yeah, uh, yeah, I can see that. I mean, uh, Spa is just about my favourite track in the world that I've driven. Uh, I can't think of anything I've enjoyed more. Um, it's so yeah. I can, it's difficult to argue with that. It's we we. We were talking about this. Uh, I was talking about this with my class, and and they were saying how fabulous you know the Nurburgring must be. And I took the wind out of everybody's sails by saying, you know, it's it's about. It, my fear is is the fallen biker, you know, is is coming around the corner and and coming on a bike, coming upon a bike who's who's lying on the track. And I know you and I have talked about that that before um, with Spa because it's the racetrack, not the closed road um and and the other thing to say about it is it's the sheer speed in comparison to british club circuits or the sort of technical in a bowl circuits that we have here like thunder hill or sears point or button willow or laguna Seca. all of these have that they're like modern facilities they don't have the kind of you know, five turns with exit speeds of more than 120 miles an hour in a Fiesta ST. You know, that's the, the like... Yeah, it's, it's amazingly fast. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's iconic as well, isn't it? But um, yeah, no, it's that, that one is hard to, hard to turn out. Um, Mark, we've come to a natural conclusion. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks very much. Pleasure. Cool.